is The Takeaway. I'm Todd Zwillick, in for John Hockenberry. Thank you for listening. Well, in today's show, we go to Scotland, to cyberspace, even to Washington. But we're going to start inside the war in Syria. In more than two years since the start of that war, the civilian death toll has exceeded 70,000 people. Add to that reports of at least 10 students killed yesterday in an attack in an outdoor cafe on a university campus in Damascus, hit by mortars, one of the deadliest attacks yet in a relatively insulated capital. The fighting is not just tearing the country apart, but it's also dividing communities, separating neighbors. It's creating an escalating sense of distrust between ethnic groups. If it wasn't for the rebels protecting us, the Alawites would come into our homes, rob us, and burn our houses down. That's a voice from the new frontline film Syria Behind the Lines, reported by Ollie Lambert, who managed to get into Syria He spent five weeks on the ground there with fighters from both the rebel and government sides, also with terrorized civilian bystanders. Meanwhile, 3,000 miles away, blogger Elliot Higgins has been monitoring weapons used in the Syrian conflict from his home in Leicester, England. His reports are documented on his blog called Brown Moses, and it helps journalists like Ollie Lambert better understand the scope and scale of the fighting there. Both Ollie Lambert and Elliot Higgins join us now. Welcome to The Takeaway. Thanks very much. Well, Ali, your film is called Syria Behind the Lines, and that's really what it is. I mean, on the front lines between these two warring sides. You you spent five weeks in Syria with cameras as shrapnel flies, bullets flies, and blood flows, unfortunately. Yeah. You spent some time on the rebel side with Ahmed, who's a soldier. Let's listen to Ahmed and set up this conversation, and I... I want to hear you talk about him. Listen to Ahmed. I was a policeman. We were sent out to quell the protests, and some of us would open fire on demonstrators. But I used to hide. I'd throw my bullets away. I looked evil when I was serving in the regime. I was full of hatred. Ali, you spent a lot of time with Ahmed as he fights, as he talks about his philosophy. Who is he? He's a young rebel fighter. He's 20 years old, and he uh, he defected from the regime police force. And he tells a very very common story amongst people who've defected, which is as regime security services, they were often sent out to quell originally the peaceful protest, and they became increasingly violent protest. And Ahmed was told to shoot and fire on these protesters and uh, was finding that incredibly difficult, would hide or would throw his bullets away and eventually it proved too much and he negotiated with smugglers to get him out of the police force and back to his home village up in Khan Safra which is where I was filming for for a few weeks and he's now a, a rebel fighter with the free Syrian army and he's regularly fighting to try and bring down the regime. On the other side of the conflict, you spoke with a member of the Syrian army under Bashar al-Assad who believes strongly that they're defending, not hurting the people of Syria. This is our time to defend the country. I'm making sacrifices for women and children and for future generations. Our mission is dangerous, but we must make this country safe again. Your reaction? What was shocking to go to the these Alawite and pro-regime villages was just the amount of fear and that's a fear that's been uh, sort of designed by the regime. I mean, it's, it's, the regime is stronger, the more fearful its, its supporters are. But the people in these villages are absolutely convinced that they're facing annihilation. They talk openly about genocide. 
and feel that as a minority, whether they're Alawites or they might be Christians or Druze or uh, Mashidians, there's a, there's a huge sense that they're going to get wiped out. And that wasn't true at the beginning of the, the revolution and really isn't, isn't true still in large parts of the country. But with every day that the conflict goes on, people are getting entrenched along these sectarian lines. And we'll, you, you see it in the film, you can see people starting to think in a, um, a very isolated, secluded, fearful way. And that's a, a very, very dangerous driver when it comes to a civil war. It's a big motor that will just fuel it on further. Elliot Higgins, Ollie Lambert has had his camera and his eyes uncomfortably close to this bloody conflict. You, on the other hand, are running a blog that is methodically and carefully monitoring the weapons that are flowing into Syria. Is that right? That's correct. Well, how has this conflict escalated recently in terms of those weapons? How is it changing? Well, throughout the conflict, there's been a uh, escalation on both sides. So what we've seen is on the Syrian military side, we've seen an increasing range of bombs being deployed, clearly from stockpiles, and that they, it, it always seems sometimes like they're working through their warehouses to see what bomb they've got to use next, because we've started with, you know, just normal high explosive fragmentation bombs, we've moved on to cluster bombs, then incendiary cluster bombs and firmer barrack weapons, but it's always been a very gradual sort of use of weapons. And then on the opposition side, as they've become better equipped, and take over other um, military bases. They've captured more equipment. They've captured um, man pads, which has allowed them to have decent air defense, which has allowed them to deploy tanks and artillery they've captured. So there's been an escalation on both sides through the entire conflict. Now, man, may I want to stop you there. Man pads are shoulder-fired anti-aircraft missiles? Uh, yes, that's correct. Surface-to-air missiles. And the West has a lot of concerns about the proliferation of those weapons, wondering what will happen to them post-conflict. And I ask it in this context. We've seen a lot of reporting lately about flights flying into Turkey from places like Bahrain and other countries, presumably carrying lots and lots of new weaponry from Croatia and other places. Uh, Under the coordination of the CIA, we're told what kind of weapons now are pouring into the hands of the rebels. Will it start to turn the tide, do you think? Um, I think we've already seen the tide turning in the south of the uh, country. The weapons that are being received, um, it's basically two types of rocket launcher, a recallless gun and a type of grenade launcher. And in the south of the country, you have to understand that unlike the north in Aleppo, where they've got quite a lot of heavy equipment already, in the south they're very poorly equipped. So this equipment has made a big difference to the groups down there. Already I'm seeing videos coming from the south of the country where they've overrun army bases, they've captured mortars, they've captured armoured vehicles. And I think what's going to happen is what I guess you could call the Aleppoization of the south of the country, where the opposition are going to get better equipment that will allow them to attack more bases. That means they'll get more equipment and eventually they're going to be pretty self-sufficient. And of course, there's been plenty of concern in this country about the use of chemical weapons all the way to the White House. Uh, The president saying what the United States would do if chemical weapons on the government side are moved or look like they're being mobilized. We've heard reports of chemical weapons potentially being used in villages. What do we really know about the use of chemical weapons? The problem with the use of chemical weapons is it's very hard to be sure they've been used without actually having people on the ground testing what's happened. What I can be sure of, though, is the um, latest reports that I've heard about the latest incident coming from the government side claiming that a rocket was fired, a DIY rocket was fired 40 kilometres from Al-Bab to the target. It hit the target 
accurately. It was carrying um, liquid suspended chlorine and it did all these injuries. To me, all those elements of the story just don't add up. I've been tracking the DIY rockets used by the Syrian um, opposition. There's no way those rockets are accurate. There's no way those rockets could carry enough chlorine suspended in a saline solution to cause the amount of injuries. In my mind, if I was a better man, I would bet it was more likely a storage container on the ground that was hit that was containing chlorine and it leaked and poisoned everyone because mm. rather unusually, there's been no footage from the actual site of the attack that I'm aware of. Ali, as you hear the story of these different weapons pouring into the country, the different weapons being used, uh, it makes one wonder if the only way out of this conflict is a military one, that there is no negotiation and that indeed the weapons that Elliot is talking about might be eventually, unfortunately, tragically, the answer to ending this. I want to play one more cut from your documentary, which sort of gives voice to the intransigent nature of this. We are not going to have a truce with killers and criminals. No way. These declarations are being made by people who live abroad, people who don't represent the revolution on the ground. I contacted all the combat divisions on the ground. They literally said that they do not want to commit to this truce. That's a rebel leader in your documentary on Frontline, Ali Lambert, who says, no truce, I take from that fight to the death. Yeah, but I mean, I don't agree that the uh, that the military solution is the only solution. Personally, I don't feel I'm not a military expert at all. I know far less about weapons than Elliot does. But it did seem to me that it's quite simple that if you give the rebels absolutely loads of weapons, it might briefly satisfy uh, a number of people and give a sense of there being a, an equivalence on both sides. But the regime has got absolutely no shortage of weapons and has also not only got a large stockpile, as Elliot says, but has got the means to get even more for themselves. So there's no shortage on both sides and heavily arming one won't necessarily bring about uh, any kind of political change. What seemed abundantly clear on the ground of what would actually would actually sort of halt the bloodshed uh, would be to enforce some kind of no-fly zone because a large part of the country in the north is held by the rebels on the ground and the regime only has control by flying over it. So it might look like there's lots happening and there's, there are many, many deaths taking place in Syria every day. There's a lot of munitions being used, a lot of blood being spilled. But actually what we're seeing is not something that's very active. This is a deadlock. Uh, it's an impasse that neither side is able to win and neither side is going to lose. Um, the thing that would bring about a political solution really is to force the regime to the negotiating table and giving the rebels more weapons uh, would not achieve that. This is not a regime that's on the brink of collapse. So personally, I feel that to, to, to fan the flames of war more is not going to bring about a solution. Uh, it, would, it would satisfy some uh, you know, large sort of hawkish members internationally and would certainly please a large number of rebel fighters. Would it actually stop people getting killed in the long run? You know, I seriously doubt it. And you raise an important point there, which is that so many of the voices in the West are calling for more arms, for escalation, for what they call finally serious military aid to the rebel forces. I want to play one more cut from your documentary, which really speaks to the perception among rebels, the Free Syrian Army and others, about whether the West really is on their side. Listen. No one is supporting us, and no one will. They're just waiting for Bashar al-Assad to kill us all and for us to wear out his army, his tanks, and his aircraft in the process. That's what the Western and Arab countries want. Their heart isn't with the Syrian people. They don't care about all this. 
about these people that are bombed to pieces. Your reaction, Ollie Lambert? Well, it's a very interesting sentiment that's expressed by Ahmed there. The people in Syria are very sophisticated. They're very internationally aware. They've watched what happened in Tunisia. They've, they've followed the Arab Spring. There is a huge sense of frustration and disbelief, frankly, that so many people are being killed and so, so little is being done. And they will look to other things for support. And in Ahmed's case, as I'm sure is the case for many young men in Syria, that will be a, a fundamentalism, a greater sense of, of religion, the importance of Islam, a sense of jihad, and also a sense of being prepared to be martyred for the cause. Um, because all other avenues, such as a political solution or international support or international aid, these things aren't working, nothing's happening. What's much more dangerous for both Syria and the wider international community is a growing sense of radicalization amongst Syrians themselves. And that's the thing that the Western observers and audiences should be keeping their eye on. Ali Lambert is a freelance documentary filmmaker and creator of the new frontline documentary, Syria Behind the Lines. It was produced by our partner WGBH and airs on PBS stations on the 9th of April. Elliot Higgins is author of the Brown Moses blog, which monitors weapons used in the Syrian conflict. Thank you both. Thanks a lot. On Notes from America, we have conversations with people across the country about how we can truly become the nation that we claim to be. Each week, we talk about race, our politics, education, relationships, usually all of them, because everything's connected. And you, our listeners, are at the center of those conversations. I'm Kai Wright. Join me on Notes from America, wherever you get your podcasts.